Well, how do we wake up to our need for God's blessing in our life? Our need to repent and experience God's mercy and to take the mercy he gives us and extend that to people around us, our friends and our enemies. Well, it's interesting because the book of Jonah is set up like a giant poem. In Hebrew, it's called a Hebrew chiasm. Hebrews didn't rhyme sounds. I found a cat who sat on a mat type thing. They rhymed ideas, which works out great because when it got translated from Hebrew to English, we can still see the parallels. And at the very uh, 30,000 foot view of Jonah, we see the parallels of this giant poem, this chiasm, to rhyme the ideas to show us that Jonah hasn't quite woken up to the idea that he needs to understand God's mercy toward him so he can extend it toward others. Let me show you. In chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, the ideas and chapters rhyme. Chapter 1 says that Jonah encounters mariners, and those mariners do not believe in his God. And yet, they care more about him than he does about them. And that idea rhymes with chapter three. Jonah encounters Ninevites, also people who don't believe in his God, and they repent according to what God says, while Jonah is angry at what God did by forgiving them. See the parallel? And you see the irony. Everybody's doing the opposite of what you might think in this book. Chapter two tells us that Jonah has a pathetic prayer as he is dying. In chapter four, Jonah has a pathetic prayer wishing he was dead. Now here's this idea. The book is written that way so we can see the ideas that he's paralleling with one another and ask ourselves, is there a Jonah in us? Pathetically praying for our own self-righteousness and asking God to rain down consequences on our enemies and not seeing how much we need God's mercy and we need God's grace, and we need to repent or wake up to our own need to get back on the right path. Now keep in mind as well that the chapter headings, chapter one, two, three, and four, weren't put in there by Jonah. They were added later for reference. So the next parallel I wanna show you relates to what you and I might call chapter two, but it actually starts a little bit earlier in chapter one, and you'll see that's kind of the way Jonah wanted the book divided, and you'll see that in this chiasm. Let me show you. So in chapter one, verse 16, it says, the mariners offered a sacrifice and God provided the fish. That rhymes with chapter two, verse nine. Jonah offers a sacrifice, just like the mariners, and God commanded the fish to vomit him out. Now, the next part of chapter two, verse one and two, Jonah cries from Sheol, the place of death, and God listened to my cry. Chapter two, verse six and seven, Jonah was in the pit, another name for death, and Jonah remembered God, just like God remembered and listened to him. Then Jonah is hurled into the deep, and his currents, God's currents, swept over me. That rhymes with Jonah sank down to the pit or to the deep and the deep surrounded him. So just like current swept over him, now the deep is surrounding him. And all this is pointing to chapter two, verse four and five, the idea that Jonah feels banished from God's sight. 
Notice the word sight and banished from his presence, which rhymes with chapter 2, verse 4b. Jonah looks toward God's holy temple and his presence to find deliverance. All right, so all these ideas point to something's going on here in this chapter that you and I need to hear. How do we wake up to repentance in our own life? I want to give you three questions. Three questions I've wrestled with as I prepared this message over the last four or five months. And these messages and these questions are convicting. But there are three ways we can wake up to areas we need to get realigned to God. Now, what's the first question? The first question is, are we willing to wake up by asking, am I sorry or am I sorry I got caught? Right? There's a big difference. One is, I really feel broken over what I did. I broke God's heart. I broke people I trusted's heart. And I'm out of alignment with God. There's a deep sense of brokenness. There's another kind of feeling of, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm not really repentant as much as it is, I don't like the consequences I'm experiencing from my actions. So here's how Jonah chapter 2 begins. Wake up to repentance. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Verse 1. Then, then, after he's in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, then he prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried to the Lord because of my affliction. To which we say, I bet you did, right? Of course you prayed when you were in the belly of a whale. And there's the question there. Is he really repentant or is he just feel sorry he got caught? He's feeling the pain, the, the terrifying pain of being stuck in a fish in the darkness with the stomach acid all around him. If anything would cause pain and repentance, it might be those circumstances. Now, quick question here before we move on, because whenever you come to a passage like this, the question comes, how can I take this book seriously? A guy was stuck in a fish for three days and three nights. Come on. This is why the Bible is not reliable. Well, let me give you three views on this. One view, and these are all held by people who take the Bible seriously, believe it's historical, believe it's reliable, and believe it was written by God. C.S. Lewis thought that this whole story was an allegory, a metaphor. And so it's a metaphor for what happens to us when we rebel, but there wasn't a literal Jonah who was in a literal fish. Now, I don't take that position, but C.S. Lewis was a smart guy, and there are some people in Christianity who say, don't worry about him surviving in a fish. It's just a giant allegory that we need to understand. All right. The second view is that this really did happen. And there has been evidence in history of people who have been swallowed by fish and their bodies have been found. Now there's also some urban legends if you Google it, but there are some actual ones where fish were caught and there was a body of an animal found in there or even a person. But the question is, did he have to survive? See, there's another view that Jonah actually dies in this chapter. He doesn't have to survive for three days and three nights because God has to raise him from the dead. Now, whichever view, I have a tendency to not take C.S. Lewis's view because of what Jesus said. Jesus actually cites Jonah, his three days and three nights, as a reference to his preaching to the fact that Jesus would one day die 
and be raised three days and three nights later from his own resurrection. So I kind of go with, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to go with what Jesus said. The guy rose himself from the dead. Uh, He took a pretty literal view of this. I'm going to do the same thing as well. But we're going to look at the evidence for that today. Again, he cries out to God because of his affliction. Then, after he's in the whale, he then cries out to God because of affliction. That's often what happens. In fact, I was talking to a friend a couple years ago. I got a phone call. He says, can you come over? I just really messed up. I said, sure. So I walk over to his house. I knock on the door. I I never met him before. He became a friend after that. I said, what's going on? He said, I have been in incredible pain for years. And sadly, I started medicating that pain with pornography. And it got kind of deeper and deeper into it. I started an affair with somebody at work. And I had some pictures of that on my computer. And my wife found all these things. And you know, he's just crying and, and wondering if he's going to save his marriage. And wondering if everything he's ever built is going to blow up in front of him. And I kind of leaned in. I remember kind of pulling my chair up to his and saying, hey, let's talk. Yeah, I'm here to help in whatever way I can. So we start chatting for a little bit, and as we're doing that, um, he says, well, I really need God's grace. I really need God's mercy. I've really just messed up. And so we prayed and gave him an opportunity to ask for God's forgiveness, and then also to say, how do we get accountability in your life? So I had him start meeting with a buddy of mine who's going through the Bible with him, and that buddy said that it was just this men's Bible study, one-on-one, was so helpful, and he started growing spiritually. However, pretty quickly, his wife not only forgave him, but wasn't holding him accountable anymore. And because he wasn't being held accountable anymore for his actions, he quickly dropped off that Bible study, stopped meeting with my friend, and sadly went back to some of those old patterns. And as I was talking to the friend of mine this week who was trying to lead him um, after this encounter, I said, what do you think happened? He said, well, I, I just don't think he was broken. When he was feeling the heat of consequences, I cried out to God because of my affliction, uh, he was moving toward God. But when the temperature got dialed back a little bit, it turned out he wasn't really sorry. He was just sorry he got caught. Well, I think that's true for all of us. You know, we need to wake up to repentance and ask ourselves, are we deeply broken that we've broken the heart of God? And why is it? Do we keep doing things we don't want to do? Well, that's why there's a second question we need to wake up to. It's waking up to resurrection. So that second question, waking up to resurrection, do I see a connection between God and my circumstances? Is there some way in which I'm not blaming everything that happens on God, but there also might be something about my current circumstances or consequences that God is using to get my attention, to draw me back to him? And that idea seems to come out pretty clearly in this prayer from Jonah. Now remember, he's on his way down. They've thrown him off the boat. Blub, 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 blub. But God had provided a great fish to swallow him. And here's what he says. And he answered me. God answered me when I cried out to him. Even though I was rebellious, even though I didn't do the right thing, even though his prayer is a little bit pathetic, as we'll see, God still answered him with his fish. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Now this is their term for death. So whether he thinks he's dying, clearly, or he actually ends up dying, both are embedded in the text. But out of the pit of Sheol, out of death, I cried to you. 
Notice the yous in this passage. I cried to you, God. You heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. You're like, no, 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 the sailors, the, the mariners cast you in the deep. He's like, no, no, I see the connection. You put me in this circumstance because I put myself in this circumstance and you were working in the middle of my rebellion to bring me back to you. So for you cast me into the deep and you cast me into, and look at this phrase, the heart of the seas. Now there's several phrases used here in the prayer. Sheol, the heart of the seas, floods that really speak to the possibility that either he died or certainly thought he was dying. And I'll show you that both might be true. You cast me into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Now you remember the question I asked? Do you see a connection between your circumstances and God? Look how Jonah did. These are the things he did right. He definitely saw God was involved here. You heard, you cast, your billows, it was your waves that are hitting me and it's your waves that passed over me. So I think for you and I, it's the same thing. We begin to say, God, I went the wrong way and I'm facing consequences. And for many of us, we blame God. I can't believe this just proves why I ran away from you. You're letting bad stuff happen to me. Versus, God, you love me enough to have me experience pain when I'm in rebellion because you want me to turn around. That's the idea. I keep going, there's some really interesting insights embedded here. But to understand Jonah's prayer, you need to understand his worldview. Now Jesus references this idea and he uses a similar phrase. Remember I mentioned the phrase, the heart of the seas? This was a Hebrew idiom about death, about dying. I went to the heart of the seas, the the dead place where dead people go. There's a similar phrase used in Jesus' time called the heart of the earth. Look how Jesus says it. Jesus answered them, they want a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was, and he's making a connection, just like something happened to Jonah, it also happened to me, or it's going to happen to me. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the son of man, I be, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As we interpret Jesus, we know he was predicting actually dying, being put in the grave, being put in the ground and dying in the heart of the earth. Now parallel that to what he's quoting in Jonah, out of the belly of Sheol, death, I cried out to you, you heard my voice and you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Hmm. So again, whether he actually died and God rose Jonah from the dead and Jesus is saying, just like he did that to Jonah, God's gonna do that to me. Or if he thought he was dying and God brought him out of a death-like situation, I think both could be true here. Now, notice again some of the phrases. Then I said, we're back to Jonah. I have been cast out. So totally out of your sight. I'm in a different realm than your sight. Yet, I will look again towards your holy temple. As I was dying, I looked up and said, God, help me. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. 
So this isn't just like physical death. Even his soul seems to be dying, or at least he seems to imply that. The deep, what's the deep? Closed around me. That sounds pretty serious. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Seaweeds all around him here. And then it says he's going down to the deep. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. Think about that. So he's going down in the ocean to the moorings of the mountains, which you say, well, there's kind of mountains under the water. We've seen that on Jacques Cousteau or National Geographic. Well, maybe. But his worldview, the bottoms of the mountains might mean something different as I'm about to show. Now go back. The earth with its bars closed around me forever. That sounds pretty serious. Yet you have brought me my life from the pit. So see these words, pit, mountains, and the deep. Now let's talk about the worldview of those living during Jonah's time. They believe that God created the earth and the earth and seas were here. When they thought about heaven and hell, this was how they perceived it. We had our atmosphere with the sun and the clouds and the the moon and stars and atmosphere were here. Then there was these waters above the ferment. That's where God lived. But when you went down into the deep, they believed there were mountains under the ocean. And in the, the mountains under the ocean was a place called Sheol or death. Very similar idea picked up in uh, the New Testament. And underneath Sheol, as you go way down to the great deep, the place of, of, of death or eternity, this was the place where there were mountains underneath and you were going down to Sheol, down to the mountains at the foundations of the earth and then all the way down to the great deep. So clearly, whatever Jonah is happening to him, He's using the language of his worldview to say, I went deep, deep down. Even my soul went down. I went down to the great deep. I went down to the, to the mountain tops underneath Sheol and I was there forever. I was in an eternal state that was bad and I need to call out to God because I was in trouble and I needed God's help to get out from the pit. And that's the idea he, he has here. Can you and I see a connection between God and our circumstances, right? I mean, have you been on a path of unkindness or self-centeredness, doing the wrong things? You said, God, I keep making promises. I don't want to keep doing this. I do what I don't want to do, and I find myself not able to make good on my promises, Father, and I keep feeling the pain. I see it in my wife's eyes. I see it in my kids' eyes. I see it in the, the, the decisions and promises I keep breaking. And God, instead of blaming you for the pain of those consequences, I want to see those consequences as you calling me back to you. And just like Jonah, either metaphorically or literally, needs you to resurrect him from the pit, I've got a lot of hell in my life. I've got a hell in my soul, hell in my body, hell in my spirit. I need you to resurrect me and what's broken in me. Now to do that, let me give you an illustration. I was in a women's Bible study. And by, by the way, if you've never been in a Bible study, you know, Authentic Manhood with uh, Ken King will be coming up uh, later in the year or a regular men's Bible study or women's Bible study. These can be great ways that we study the Bible as we're doing here go deeper, but also have people ask us questions. 
Well, this illustration is one that I shared with a women's Bible study at one of the trainings they invited me to eh, a couple years ago. But I think it's helpful in understanding what's going on in the Old and New Testament. The metaphor is not that we are bad people who need to be good. The metaphor is that we are dead people who need to be made alive. See, you and I are made as three parts, it says in Thessalonians. We are made with a body, we're made with a soul, and we're made with a spirit. And the problem is that when Adam and Eve sinned, all three of those died. So you and I now have a dying body, right? It's not just a bad body, it's a dying body. We also have a dying soul. So what's your soul? Well, your soul is composed of three parts. What you think, what you want, and what you feel. And the problem is I often want bad things. I want dead things. I want to do something selfish. I want to lie to get out of consequences. I want to fudge the truth. And what I feel, I don't always feel like God is for me. I don't always feel like obeying. I don't always feel like being nice when I want to be naughty. I I don't even want the right things or think the right things. Now, these are not bad things I need to be better about. These are dead spots. But the big problem is in the center of my life is a dead spirit. So when you become a Christian, you're basically saying, God, I've got dead spots everywhere that I can't fix. I need you to resurrect them, to save me from the pit that's in me. And God sends his Holy Spirit. And so his Holy Spirit, so here's God's Holy Spirit. And so God's Holy Spirit comes in and replaces our dead spirit. And so now we have a brand new spirit that's alive to God. And that new spirit is the engine that I say, God, conform me, transform my mind, take my thoughts captive in my soul. So I wanna think the things that you think. I wanna want the things that you want. I wanna feel the things that you feel. And so when you wake up to resurrection, it's saying, God, I see dead spots all around me. God, conform me. Thank you for forgiving me, but transform me. And I'm going to trust you one day that just like you raised Jesus' body from the grave, literally and physically, you'll raise my body, literally and physically, from the grave as well. So resurrection is at the core of everything the Bible teaches. And that's why this idea of Jonah dying, literally or metaphorically, and needing God to resurrect him is at the core of the teaching of the Old Testament and the New All right, third question. Can we wake up to God's mercy? And that comes with a question. See, waking up to God's mercy is asking ourselves, do I recognize what I don't deserve? All right, before you're gonna extend grace and mercy and compassion to your enemies, or people who disagree with you, or people who are just irritating, you're not gonna be able to give away something that you haven't received. And the opposite is true. If you feel like God has been incredibly merciful and kind, given you resurrection when you were dead, delivered you from circumstances that you didn't deserve, you'll be like, you know what? That guy, that person, that relative who I don't like, that person I disagree with, they don't deserve mercy. (sighs) But neither did I. So I want to give to others what God gave to me. But it starts with waking up to mercy. Do I realize that God's given me something I don't deserve. Well, here's what happens. Verse six, yet you, God, you showed up when I was dead. Yet you brought my life from the pit. You reached down and yanked me out of the pit, out of death itself. Oh Lord, my God, when my soul fainted within me, 
Now, not my body fainted, my soul fainted. Another hint about death. It was then I remembered the Lord. As I was dying or thought I was dying, I then remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple, into your presence in heaven. Those who regard worthless idols, worth idols aren't gonna save people from death. Idols are not gonna save people from the heart of the seas. God, you're the only one that can rescue. Those who regard worthless idols for their sake, they forsake their own mercy. Now do you see there's still a little bit of self-righteousness here. Even as he's dying, he's still criticizing. He's praising God, good stuff, and he's criticizing his enemies still. Right? So let me give a little bit of that self-righteous tone to this prayer. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. They're not getting their mercy. But I, unlike them, will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what, have, what I have vowed. I don't break my promises like those pagans. But salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but there's so much mercy in this passage. Think of it this way. There's two ways out of that great fish. Yeah, two ways. There's the front end or the back end. God mercifully chose to put him out the front end versus the back end. Now, two things here. Clearly, God is the only one who could rescue him from death. God was the provider of mercy to this rebellious prophet, giving him what he didn't deserve. And salvation, deliverance could only come from God. But can you imagine that he's still praying and criticizing other people and talking about how wonderful he is compared to them in this prayer? It's, it's shocking. Ah, but I will, but I will, but I don't do the things that they don't do. So, in the middle of this passage is this idea of their worthless idols, their worthless gods, the worthless gods of the mariners and the worthless gods of the Ninevites. This idea is helpful to understand something that we can't pick up in English, but it's written in the Hebrew. To understand it, I need to tell you a story. A story of some Canaanite gods. Because the Canaanite gods that started with the time of Abraham and were still there by the time of Joshua, these became the names of the gods that got translated into the Assyrian Empire, the Nineveh is the capital of, and eventually the Babylonian gods. Quick story. Here's a story of Baal. So you've heard the story of Baal, or Baal he's called. Baal was known in the Canaanite religion as the rising god. He wanted to be king of everything and have a palace in the sky. His dad's name was El, and El told his son Baal that he could have a palace if he could defeat the gods of chaos and the gods of death. So he comes up against Yom. Yom is the god of chaos. In fact, the Hebrew word for sea is the same word as this god, Yom, because it was always about the chaos controlled by the gods. But Yom had a buddy. He had two names, Leviathan, the sea dragon, but also he was known as Yom Nahar. And in the Canaanite religions, Baal defeated Yom, and he defeated Leviathan or Yom Nahar, and he was victorious and worthy of being the chief god but he'd never defeated death. He went face to face with Mott, and what happened? <laughs> well, even though he could defeat Yom, and even though he could defeat Yom Nahar, he could not defeat Mott. Mott was death itself. 
And when he went to battle with the God of death or the God of Sheol, he was actually killed and he could not resurrect himself. So Baal stuck. What do you do when you can't resurrect yourself? Well, he had to get help. So his sister and his mom came in and gave him some tools and they were able to defeat death as kind of a group. But he was an incapable God of defeating death on his own. However, he does defeat death through the help of his buddies and his family and he becomes known in the Baal cycle as the rising God and Baal was worthy of worship because he defeated death. Now with that in mind, there's something written in the Hebrew that seems to imply that the God of the Bible can do what these stories or myths of the Canaanite gods and the Ninevite gods couldn't do. Let's look at it in Hebrew or a little bit of Hebrew. In his prayer, he says, out of the belly of Sheol, which was the realm of Mot, so I came face to face with the realm of Mot, and it was in that moment I cried out, and you heard my voice into the heart of the seas, and there is the Hebrew word for yam, or in plural, yamim. I went face to face with yam, the sea, face to face with yam, the god, the Poseidon of the seas. And the floods, and that word floods is where we get the word nahar. It is literal floods, but also was the word used for nahar, leviathan. So I went face to face with what these worthless idols of the the Ninevites were, the gods that controlled everything, and they surrounded me. I, I was a goner. And Baal couldn't defeat death, not by himself. I couldn't defeat death, and yet you, you God have brought me from the pit. You raised me from the dead or you rescued me from the pit. You did what even the gods of the Assyrians could not do. They're worthless idols or incapable of doing what my God could do. Oh Lord, my God, salvation is truly of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and the fish vomited Remember, there are two ways out. Jonah onto dry land. So what does it look like for you and I to wake up to mercy? Oh, I need resurrection. I have turned to so many things for peace and comfort and life. Think of it that way. Maybe it's a question of life. Where do you go for for life? Money? People's approval? Accomplishments? It's where you go to find life. That's your real God. But the only God that really came into history, really defeated death literally in history, was Jesus Christ. And when you awaken to that idea that I need mercy, I need the only God who's defeated death to come and transform me, make me the kind of man, make me the kind of husband, make me the kind of leader, work with my dead spots, I become increasingly humble. Thank you, God and increasingly dependent, I need more of that, and not self-righteous or self-sufficient. So what's our key takeaway? Well, it's, I think it's the reality that we need to keep waking up to this idea. It's not a one-time prayer you pray when you're a kid, it's I keep waking up to my need for repentance. God, what do I need to thank you for and turn back toward that I've done today or this week? I need to keep waking up to resurrection God, I've got dead spots. My goodness, I've got dead spots. 
I want the wrong things. I think the wrong things. I desire the wrong things. God, fill, allow your spirit in me, your Holy Spirit in me to flow into my thoughts, flow into my, my feelings and flow into my desires. Give me the mind of Christ. But keep doing that. Keep waking up to your need for mercy. Keep waking up to repentance. Keep waking up to the power and necessity of resurrection abiding in him. And as you wake up, be honest with those moments of self-righteousness when you feel better than other people. The last couple months, there's been a lot of people on Facebook I've unfollowed, and there's been a lot of unfriended. It's not because they aren't friends of mine. Some of them are really good friends of mine, but they got really preachy. You know, people got really preachy on Facebook, right? And, and you're just annoyed, right? Because you're like, they're, they're, whatever view you is and whatever the topic it is, they're lecturing you. Blah, 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 blah. And if you would just, and you'd be just like me, then things would be perfect, and you're wrong, 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 wrong. I'm right, 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 right. Click, unfollow, and then it was still annoying, somehow it got through, unfriend. And it wasn't a lot of people, but it's like, you know, I don't know, 5% of people I was unfollowing, unfriending, because I was just tired of being lectured. And I was kind of feeling pretty self-righteous. Yeah. Thank goodness I'm not like them. Have you done that? I know I have. And when you find yourself wagging your finger in your heart at other people, it's actually a time to look in the mirror. Say, God, boy, that person thinks if everyone was like them, we'd be a better place. But you know what, in my heart, what I really think, if I'm really honest, I think if everyone was like me, we'd have a better world, right? Don't you? I mean, isn't it true that that's what's broken in us? And it doesn't mean there aren't healthy disagreements we can have on every subject and and we can come to disagreements, but we gotta uh, extract that self-righteousness that says even when we disagree, uh, I'm humble and I'm forgiven and man, I needed God's mercy. And maybe you do too. In fact, I remember having to refriend a friend of mine now that kind of all the commotion's over. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, mm, because I didn't just unfollow them, I unfriended them, they're going to know that I did it. But I just realized it was kind of a reminder to me, to God, I need, I need to be reminded that I need your mercy. And I need to be reminded that but for you, I am nothing, but in you I am everything. I think that's why we as a church feel so passionately about studying the Bible. A cursory glance at, at Jonah doesn't get into all the depth, the chiasms, the challenges, the, the Hebrew. To have an exploring service, an equipping service, but really to hold up a mirror of God's grace and say, because I'm so forgiven in God's grace, I'm able to look at what's broken in me. I'm able to say, thank goodness, whatever I found, he's already forgiven me for. So at Horizon, we're trying to comfortably connect people to God through verse-by-verse Bible teaching at our equipping service and through exploring environments for people kicking the tires who want challenging Bible teaching but have a lot of doubts about God, Jesus, or the Bible. They're skeptical. We want these online services and our live services on the weekend to be a tool you can use to invite friends to that. And maybe as God's waking you up to some things in your own life, that he's challenging you toward, you're saying, I want to be part of that. So maybe as we're continuing to open up and, and having more and more people coming on the weekends, you want to 
Say, hey, I want to raise my hand. Where can I help? Can I greet? Can I, can I cut packages together for children's ministry who's now open? How can I extend mercy to others because God's done so much for me? Or maybe it's financially. You say, listen, um, it was a challenging year. I'm sure it's a challenging year for the church. I knew you guys have done lots and lots of ways. I can do live services, uh, my children's ministry, there's, there's family picnics. I want to financially extend ways to say, God, I want to give to you and your work at Horizon really to say thanks for the work you're doing in me. But really pray. Really pray and ask God what he's doing in your heart. And how can we as a church come alongside what God's doing in you and help you to find conviction, but conviction that's surrounded by the grace of God. Can I ask you to pray about that? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your grace, and thank you for your love, and thank you that you love the Jonah in me, you love the rebel in me, and I thank you that you'd be willing to die and raise your son from the dead so you can raise me from the dead, body, soul, and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.